Thanks again, praise team. Starting the morning blessed, amen? Thank you so much for that. Wow, we are back into Revelation chapter 14. So if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 14 with me as we're talking about the 11th hour, we're talking about the events and the end of, of history that are yet to come. In, in the last several weeks, we've been talking about the, the counterfeit trinity, Satan's counterfeit trinity, and this idea that God exists in a trinity. You have the Father, you have Jesus Christ, who is the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. And when Satan said in Isaiah 14, I want to be like the Most High, he began a process of creating his own counterfeit. And so he's creating this own counterfeit, and of course he puts himself at the top. In the last two weeks in Revelation 13, we looked at two different beasts. We looked at one beast which represented uh, the Antichrist, and this was the political arm of, of Satan's trinity. And so the Antichrist was the ruler over, uh, over Rome, being the, uh, the revival of the Roman Empire. Then we saw in a second beast, we saw the false prophet. And this is not the political arm, but this ended up being the religious arm of Satan's trinity. And the false prophet uh, would lead over what we call the beast. Uh, so the false prophet then leading the, the beast, right? We call it the beast. And so we have this satanic uh, trinity. And, and what's interesting there when you think about it is that at this point in, 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 in Revelation 13, things are looking pretty good for Satan, aren't they? I mean, if you stop and think about it, Satan said, I will be like the Most High. And now you look at, at the world at the time of Revelation 13 and what's going on. Satan's at the top pulling the strings. He's got the Antichrist becoming the one world leader. He's got the false prophet doing amazing things that convinces the entire world that they need to worship the beast. Uh, he, and, and he's doing all these, these supernatural things and everyone's falling for it. It sounds like Satan's winning, doesn't it? At the end of chapter 13, that's, that's the way it seems. In fact, I would say that in chapter 13, this was good news for Satan, good news for those who accepted the mark of the beast. Those who accepted the mark of the beast would be spared, and, and they, it was good news for them. But it was bad news for anyone who refuses the mark of the beast in, in chapter 13. Remember that we finished chapter 13 with this idea. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So it was bad news for anyone who is not willing to worship the beast, anyone who is not willing to receive the mark of the beast was to be killed. Well, that seems pretty bad. But Revelation doesn't end in chapter 13. Anyone glad for that? I'm glad that it doesn't end in 13. In fact, I like uh, how in, in chapter 14 things change quite a bit. In chapter 14, John is going to get a, a, a glimpse of the end. So in chapter 14, John actually gets a little bit of a glimpse of what's going to happen at the very end, and then the story is going to catch up uh, to that. They call this a proleptic uh, uh, prophecy. What that means, basically, if we think through, we've gone through chapter 13, things aren't going very good, but what we find in the next chapter in the Bible is going to give us a glimpse of what's going to actually happen at the end. We see that, what's going to happen at the very end, and then starting back in chapters 15, we'll pick up where we left off in, in chapter 13 and kind of get there. So there's this, this proleptic prophecy. In other words, it's a, it's a prophecy that comes out of chronological order in order to show, some, show a connection between what was going on in chapter 13 and what's going to be happening at the end of time. Does that make sense? So you, you've got this connection being made here, and, uh, and 
And so that's where we come to when we come to verse 1 of chapter 14. So with all that background in mind, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 14. We read this. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, think about this compared to what we just learned last week, right? Uh, remember what we saw last week? There were, there were two things uh, that we saw last week. First, we saw the beast who looked like a lamb, right? Remember how the beast looked like a lamb, but in reality, what was it? It was a dragon, right? And when the dragon obviously means, as it was referring to Satan being the one pulling the, the, the string. So the beast looked like a lamb, but was a counterfeit. In fact, we probably remember hearing the word counterfeit probably a hundred times last week, right? We saw so many counterfeits, and, uh, and that's what we saw. We also saw that the followers of the beast were sealed by the mark of the beast, right? That's what we left with in chapter 13. Now we're in chapter 14, and we, we see something. We see that these were just counterfeits, right? Because what are we introduced to? Verse 1 of chapter 14. Instead of a beast who looks like a lamb, we're introduced to the lamb, the real thing. So do you see why John is taking us all the way to the end? He wants us to see a, a contrast between what was going on in chapter 13 and where this is going to end up. And, and to remind him, even though he hasn't even gone through all of the trials that are yet to come, he's saying, before you do this, before you go any further, you need to know how the story is going to end. Right? He's going to give us, a, what they call this, a spoiler. Right? He's giving us a little spoiler, telling us how it's going to end. We have the lamp. Remember in chapter 13, we saw the followers who were sealed by the mark of the beast. What we find here in chapter 14, verse 1, we find followers that are sealed with the very name of God. So John's making a very clear contrast here. You have to see a difference here. And these ones are not counterfeits, though. These are the real deal. These are the real thing. And, uh, and so this is a reminder that everything that we saw in chapter 13, even though it looks like Satan's getting away with everything and he's building his kingdom, it's counterfeit. It's, it's not the real deal. Now with that in mind, let's continue. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. By the way, just this introduction to uh, what we're going to see here in a moment, is, it's, it's a very strong one because uh, the, this terminology, the voice of many, of many waters. Has anyone ever been really close to a large waterfall. I remember going to Niagara Falls. Anyone been to Niagara Falls? And just the, the power of that water as it pours over this, this cliff. Uh, for me, probably the most, most impressive one was going to Yosemite Falls. It's not nearly as wide, but it, it has two portions, and the lower portion is three times higher than, than Niagara Falls. The higher portion is nine times higher than Niagara Falls. You can just imagine this, this, this river just pouring over that. And, uh, and I remember as, as, as my wife and I hiked up there, you have to do all this zigzagging to get up there, and it would get louder and louder. It's really awesome, right? And, and it's, so it's this terrifying, powerful the idea of many, the voice of, of many waters, loud thunder. By the way, this description, uh, the voice of many waters, is used in Scripture to refer to uh, some pretty powerful things. In Ezekiel 1, it's used to refer to the voice of the archangels. I mean, that's pretty high up, right? In, uh, in Revelation 1, in this, own, in this book itself, it's used in reference to Jesus Christ. 
And then also in Ezekiel 43, it's referenced for God Almighty. So whenever this kind of language is used, there's, there's a power behind it. Does that make sense? And you get this feeling like, wow, this is just an amazing, overwhelming, powerful thing. And so here, we're going to find that it's the praise of the 144,000 and, the, and their converts. So let's, let's take a, a look at verse 3. They, in context, we're talking about the 144,000, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Wow. So that, what makes all of this impressive sound? 144,000, they sang a song, and it must have been glorious in John's vision. By the way, it hasn't happened yet, so it will be glorious when it happens, right? And so we look forward to that. I find it very interesting. There's a couple things I think that we, it's worth noting. Notice that it called it a new song, a new song. Now, when you find in the Old Testament, anytime you find the terminology, a new song in the Old Testament, uh, what that means is, is a, it's a song that was written when God's people had experienced something new from God, whether it was a, a new victory or uh, a new revelation or a new mercy. They would sing to the Lord a new song. And that's why the Psalms say so many times, sing to the Lord a new song, showing for us that, that even though we are commanded to sing old songs, because that's how we remember what God has done, we're also commanded to write new ones. Because we're continuing to interact with God. We continue to have a relationship with God. And so we should be writing new songs as well. And God is honored when we write songs that glorify him for things that he's doing right here, right now. Amen? And so we want to make sure we, we understand that. So this is God doing something very different. Walvoord put it this way in his commentary. He said, A new song is one in which, in consequence of some mighty deeds of God, comes a new impulse of gratitude in the heart. So there's some impulse of gratitude that just drives them to sing this song and they write and sing this new song i also find it very interesting here it says that no one and no one could learn that song except the 144,000. i'll be honest the first time i read that i had to scratch my head a little bit anyone scratching their heads when they read this or when i read it today they say wait what does that mean and no one could learn that song um, because I don't think what that means, let me start there, I don't think that what that means is that it's just a complicated song and no one could figure it out, right? Because there's, you know, there, I could just imagine them singing and then uh, people saying, oh, I'd like to sing that song, and they go to sing the words, like, I can't remember the word. It's not, I don't think that's what it's talking about. <laughs> but what I think it is talking about here, it, when it says that no one could learn that song, I think the idea here is that, that this song came as an expression of a gratitude from a very unique experience came from such a unique experience that only the 144,000 could sing that song and, uh, because it came out of that impulse of gratitude for something very unique, something very special. So I can't sing that song because if I were to sing that song, it would be a lie for me to sing it. Does that make sense? So this is such a, such a beautiful song, such a, a powerful song from a powerful experience and, uh, and, and it's unique to these people. Now think about what they've gone through on earth. And where is it leading? It's leading to this awesome, unique experience of worship and intimacy with their creator. Then he goes through, in verse, starting in verse 4, and he describes, he starts to describe the, who it is singing these songs. Now, we know it's 144,000, 
Uh, so it's a description of the 144,000. But look at the description that he gives them, verse 4 and 5. It says, These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Wow, so what a description. I mean, you think of this description of the 144,000. Uh, let's break it down. I, I found four things that I want to highlight out of that description. Number one is it comes from verse 4 when it says, They were not defiled with women. Uh, now, this could have two potential meanings. If you go with a very literal meaning of that, uh, that they were not defiled with women, the idea would be that, that they were celibate, right? So they, they, were, they just didn't have uh, sexual relationships with the opposite sex. Uh, but they did, not, they did not do that. So they were not married. Um, or at the very least, it could mean uh, that they were faithful to their spouses only um, as well. Um, either of those could fit grammatically in that literal interpretation of that. Um, there's also a figurative understanding of this because um, oftentimes in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, God would use uh, the analogy of adultery to represent uh, the, the break in the relationship between his people and himself. So, for example, God used the analogy to, when talking to Israel of him being the husband and Israel being the wife. We find the same thing with the church in Jesus Christ, right? This analogy of being married because what are we saying when we marry each other? We're saying, I am committing to you and you're committing to me and we will seek no others. So when, when they committed to God and then would follow other gods, God said that you're committing adultery, right? So, uh, for example, I, I, I uh, put one text here on the screen, Ezekiel 23, 36, and 37 says, the Lord also said to me, son of man, who will judge Ahola and Aholibah, nicknames for Judah and Israel, then declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. All right, so literal, the literal interpretation of that would be that they committed literal adultery. But in context, what does it say? They have committed adultery with their idols and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire, to devour them. So God is using the analogy of adultery to show that they were being idolatrous by breaking their commitment of exclusivity with God. Does that make sense? So I, in this context, uh, I think that, that it's this second sense that is being used here. Let me give you two quick reasons why. This isn't in the notes. This is uh, just to explain why I come to the conclusion that I do. Number one, nowhere in Revelation 7, when it talks about the, the 144,000, nowhere does it say anything about a prerequisite that they had to be celibate. It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say that they weren't married. It doesn't say any of that. It just says uh, that, that God chose them. Um, secondly, what do we find in context here? In context here, in chapter 13, the 144,000 are the few people on earth who were surviving the tribulation. And what did we find? Anyone who was not willing to take on the mark of the beast was to be killed. Here you have a group of people who had an opportunity to commit what? Idolatry. And they did not commit idolatry. So I believe that that's what the case is here. Uh, in reality, I think there's a sense in which both could be true. Uh, uh, but when it says then that they... Uh, that they were not 
defiled with women, I believe that it's, it's saying basically they refused to commit idolatry. They did not uh, commit adultery spiritually by committing idolatry. They did not bow down to the worship and to worship the image of the beast. Look what else it says in verse 4 when it describes it. It says, those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. I think the second description here would be that they follow Christ regardless of the consequences. The idea of following Jesus wherever he goes means you totally sell out to Jesus and you say, I'm going to follow you wherever that takes me, regardless of the consequences, I'm there. You know, what's interesting is that's what Jesus demanded when he preached the gospel. Remember that? There were people who would say, what, what must I do to be saved? How can I go to the kingdom of heaven? And he would look them in the eye and say, well, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. Well, I can't do that, I'm rich. Then you're not ready to follow me. Does that mean that every person has to sell everything they have? No, he was testing the man to see if he was willing to, to follow the lamb wherever he would go. And, God said, and the lamb said, this is where I'm going. And he said, no. And so God thinks he's such a big deal that if you were to compare all the riches of the world and all the things that the world has to offer to him, and you hesitate and you think, no, I kind of want the things of the world, then you don't get it. And you know what? I have to think he's right. He's the only one who who could think that way and deserve it. Right? And that's where God, that God is that way. Jesus is God, and he says, you've got to follow him. How, does, how are these men who experienced this beautiful moment in heaven where he's in the presence of the throne room of God, which is, by the way, that's where the, the, the archangels are. So when you see the archangels and the four living creatures, and they're singing in that, in that context we look at the description, these were people who said, I'm going to follow Christ regardless of the consequences. I'm going to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 8. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you what? What? Wherever you go. I will follow you wherever you go. And then what did Jesus say? Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's he saying? You want to follow me? You might not have a home. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to follow me wherever I go? Because I might not be going to a five-star resort. In fact, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. You might have nothing. Is it worth following Jesus for that? I would suggest it's absolutely worth, worth it to follow Jesus regardless. Third description we see in the same verse at the end of verse 4. It says, redeemed from among men, being firstfruits. So this idea of, uh, of redeemed is one of being bought. So I would say that the third description is that they, they belong to God. They belong to God. They're, they've been bought. The idea, by the way, of firstfruits is the idea of trust. The uh, firstfruits was a practice in the Old Testament where they would take the first of the harvest and they would offer it to the Lord. So here they've gone all through the dry spell. All of a sudden, now they have all this food. And what do they do? They offer it to the Lord first. You don't do that unless you're trusting that the same God who gave you the first harvest is going to continue to give you a harvest, right? And when they trusted in God, he blessed them. And that's what you find here in this, in this very context. You have the 144,000 and they have to act in trust. 
mean, it would be very easy to follow the world and say, okay, all we have to do is, is fall into the system, put a mark on our foreheads or on our wrists, and now we can eat again. It would be very easy for them to, to do that. But instead they say, no, I'm trusting Jesus wherever he goes. He says not to do that. Our, our heads have already been sealed with the name of God. We're not going to get involved with any of that stuff. Um, that means now they're going to start starving. They're gonna, life is going to be very difficult for them. And they say, okay, we're going to follow the lamb. If that's where the lamb takes us, that's where we're going. And so that's what, what they did. In verse 5, it also says, <clears throat> in their mouth was found no deceit. And their mouth has found no deceit. Remember that the false prophet used miracles to deceive in chapter 13. He's using all these miracles to deceive. And the majority of earth dwellers would, would also fall into that same concept. They, would, they would, uh, would believe and propagate the same things. It's much like when you consider what a lot of the extreme Muslims are doing right now in multiple countries around the world right now where they're, go- they're targeting Christians. And in fact, it's interesting, more Christians are being killed for their faith right now than at any other point, and yet you never hear about it. But they're, they're being tortured, they're being killed, and what, what are they being told? If you say these few things that are not true, we'll let you live. You have to say that Jesus is not God. You have to say that Muhammad is the, the highest prophet of Allah. And you have to call God Allah. Right? So they th- you have to say these things that are not true. But no deceit is found in their mouths if they tell the truth. And they're saying, you're trying to put deceit in our mouths, and we're not going to propagate that. We won't do it. That's not going to be so easy in Revelation 13. But they did it. It's not going to be easy. But they did it. So I, would, I put it this way. Number four, they did not propagate Deceit. They would not take it. They would not, they would not repeat it. And then the final words there in verse 5 kind of encapsulate all four of those things. And when it says, they are without fault before the throne of God. God says, they had all these temptations to give in. And they did. They were faultless before the throne of God in that sense. Where are they singing right now? Before the throne of God. That's what we find in, in the context. Wow. Bottom line here is, is very simple. The 144,000 were those who were redeemed by God. They kept the truth. They faithfully followed the lamb. And, and they would not bow down to the image of the counterfeit lamb at all. Now, in chapter 13, they would be persecuted for that. And others who followed them would be killed for that as well. But not so in chapter 14. In fact, the the rest of this chapter is actually laid out in a series of actions by various angels representing different things that are going on in heaven and on earth. And and in that, we're going to find that there are actually four truths here that that should encourage the persecuted. By the way, remember where John is at when he's writing this. Where's John at? He's, He's on the Isle of Patmos, exiled for what? For being a Christian and giving the testimony of Jesus. So he's being persecuted. What an encouragement this was for John. But what an encouragement this also can be for us and for Christians and all Christians who suffer whatever form of persecution is taking place. So I find these four truths to encourage uh, those who are persecuted uh, quite a bit. Number, uh, number one, let's begin in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give, him, give glory to Him, 
For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Well, the, the first truth that I find encouraging here is this. It's, it's that everyone has a chance to repent. Everyone has an opportunity to repent. Think about it. What's it called? It's called the everlasting gospel. Think about that. There's an everlasting gospel, something that goes out, that is declared uh, to, the, to, the, to the world. Now, Satan and his trinity, they're deceitful, right? But the eternal gospel is understandable and it is available to everyone. Consider this in, in Psalm uh, 19, the first four verses, we read this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day, utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their, their words to the end of the world. You know, the, the idea that, that people can escape this lifetime saying, oh, I had no idea that there was a God, that's not true. That's a lie. Everyone can look around. You look at it and say, there is no speech, no language where you can't look at this and say, there's design to this. There's beauty to this. You know, when you take paint and, and, and you just splash it up on a wall, um, is that beautiful? Or when you have an artist who takes paint, takes his time and puts order and design and creation, and then you see something beautiful. Now, that's beautiful. Now, that might mean that there are certain uh, exhibits I won't like at modern art museums, but, um, you know, because I actually saw one, uh, one display where this, this professor of art shows this picture and says, why is this so brilliant? And uh, so all these artists were explaining why and who expresses this and all this kind of stuff. And then he zoomed out and it was actually his apron where he had wiped his hands after, after painting, right? So, I mean, there, you know, we, can't, we have to learn to, to appreciate the chaotic and ignore design in order to get through this life and try and convince ourselves there's no such thing as God, right? I mean, the heavens declare the, the glory of God. And, and so when someone says, well, what about people who have never heard the gospel? I take them to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, 28, where it says, And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. This is Revelation 13 kind of stuff, right? Idolatry. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, we don't have enough to understand. You don't look at creation and say, I bet there's a son of God who died on the cross for my sins. I get it. But you do look at creations and say, there's a God. And if you seek him, what does this say? You'll find him. But I like the way Jeremiah puts it when he says, if you seek him with your whole heart, you will be found by him. Both are true, because you find each other. Two different aspects of the same truth. But we look at this and we realize that angels are making sure people see enough to seek. And if they seek, God makes sure that they'll find. Now, I find this to be a comfort. When I, when I think about that, I, th- I find it be, to be very comforting because we're about to read about the, the impending doom. Look at verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Think about that. So first of all, we, 
the second angel comes along and says, Babylon has fallen. And, we, and, and then it goes on and uses this analogy of drinking the wine of the wrath of her fornication, saying that Babylon has, has made people, you know, what we would say, maybe they make people drink the Kool-Aid. You ever heard that expression, right? And so made the, made the people drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and they're, they're falling for this deceit. And, um, and, it, and it's, it's the wrath of fornication, of, of sexual indiscretion, and so on. So we look at this, and, and in context, we have to understand what some of this means. First of all, the first question I asked when I came to this text was, was Babylon. Why Babylon? Right? Why, why, why does this go to Babylon in all of this? And, um, and I think that there's two reasons. Number one, um, remember in Daniel's vision of the four major empires, um, Babylon was the first. Babylon was the first empire that would foreshadow the Roman Empire. The first one to foreshadow that the Roman Empire would come. Now the Roman Empire come, came in two stages. It came once in the past, the, the first reign of the Roman Empire, and then there's one that's yet to be in the future uh, when, when they're brought back. But if you remember Daniel's vision from when we studied Daniel, it was the very first one as well. A second, second thing, a reason why I think the word Babylon is used here, because you, if you remember in John's day, when the, the Christians were being persecuted by the Romans, right? Christians were being persecuted by the first Roman Empire. And so what they would often do is they would use the word Babylon to refer to Rome. Why? Because it is against the law to refer to Rome in a negative way. So what did they do? They would use the first kingdom that foreshadowed Babylon, and they would just use that as the term for Rome. Uh, I'll give you an example in Scripture. 1 Peter 5.13. Peter says this, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Did Babylon exist when 1 Peter was written? Was he talking about a literal Babylon? No. Why? Because Babylon didn't even exist, right? So what does he say? What is he talking about here? When she who is in Babylon elect together with you, he's talking about the church. Where was he, where was he, where did he, where was he talking about? Where did he just come from? Rome. So what is he really saying? He's saying, uh, he's saying the church in Rome greets you. The church that's being persecuted. And since they're being persecuted, she who is in Babylon, because he knows and they know, that Babylon was a foreshadow of Rome. Does that make sense? And so you look at this and, you, and, you, and it starts to come clear. I think that, that it brings about the second truth that I find encouraging for anyone going through persecution for their faith. And that's that every empire of our persecutors will fall. From Babylon to Rome, they're going to fall. When you think about it, Babylon is fallen. What an encouragement that is to hear. Babylon is fallen. It's fallen. The very empire that's persecuting you, fallen. Every empire of our persecutors will one day fall. And not only will they fall, but look at verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand... He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels 
and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Wow, what a turnaround from chapter 13. Isn't it? What we see in chapter 13 is going to be very different than what we see in the end. Which brings it to the, to the third truth that I, that I find comforting, is that our persecutors will be tormented forever. Now think about that. They've had a chance to repent, right? They've had an opportunity to repent. But their organizations, their empires are going to fall. And those who are guilty of persecution are going to receive what they deserve. This is a total turnaround from chapter 13. Let's do a little comparison between the two. We look at chapter 13. Who's in charge? Rome is in charge, right? The Antichrist, the, the false prophet. Rome is in charge. What we find in chapter 14, Rome's fallen. It's all, it's down. We, we find that those, in chapter 13, those who receive the mark of the beast, they're the ones who are spared. But what does this say in chapter 14? Those who receive the mark of the beast, they're the ones who are going to receive the wrath of God. The wrath of God. In chapter 13, those who refuse the mark of the beast, they're killed. But those who receive the mark of the, or refuse the mark of the beast in chapter 14, those are the ones who are spared. In fact, those are the ones who would get a special presence in the throne room of God and they're singing a song that we just can't even grasp. Do you see that difference? Do you see now why John is saying, okay, right in the midst of, of Revelation 13, I'm going to take you all the way to the end for a moment. You've got to see this before you go through any of this. He's reminding us of, of all of those things that are going to take place. I think it's interesting, too, that, that with the, there's an analogy here of wine. So just as we read the analogy of wine... Remember that the Babylon gave wine to the nations and convinced them to do what was wrong? Now we see another analogy of wine, but this time it's God using the analogy of wine. And, uh, and in fact, I think it's interesting here too. It says, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Usually, wine, when they would make it, it was very strong, so they would have to dilute it with water to make it drinkable for a human being. But God uses the word full strength here on purpose to say, this is pure, undiluted wrath of God. This is, this is complete indignation, and it, it's, uh, it's full strength. And what full strength, what does that look like? Well, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. This, this is hell-type language right here. And it goes on to say, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. This is eternal. Compare that to the persecution of the 144,000. What's the max length of persecution in a seven-year period of time compared to eternity? Think about that. Changes our perspective, doesn't it? When we think of what's going on, it reminds us, when we think of how small this life is and how huge eternity is, it get, changes our perspective of everything. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. That's eternal. Do you, do, you, do you see how encouraging and comforting it is for us, though? To recognize that. That God has not forgotten us. And we're, when we're in the midst of our persecution, God hasn't forgotten us. He's waiting. He's given opportunity for them to repent. He's given, he's, in his mercy and in his grace... 
He's also giving us an opportunity to go through some experiences that even though they're unpleasant right now, there's going to come a day where we'll be able to look back at them and rejoice with God for those. Right? But so many times, I think as Christians, we just want to get through life and skate by without, getting it, without being harmed by anything. Right? And when in reality, that's not what we're called to be. That's not what we're called to do. With, with, in order to, to get glory, you have to go through some pain. You have to actually go accomplish some things. You know, uh, you can imagine if a person, you know, wanted to, to be in the, or if a person's in the Olympics and they get on this balance bar, you know, and, and they have to do this. And, and if all they're worried about is getting through unscathed, what's going to happen? They're going to get up there and go like this, like this, you know, like this, maybe even grab the, grab the bar, work their way across, get to the other side. There's no glory in that, right? There's, there's no glory in that. Why? Because they didn't do anything. Why do, we, why do we actually clap our hands when they do some, because they do some pretty crazy things, things that if we were to try to do, we would spend the rest of our lives in a chiropractor's office, I think, right? And so we look at that and we say, wow, but God is allowing people and giving them the grace to get through certain things so that when they get to the end, they can look back at what God brought them through and say, wow, look at that. By the way, that's not just true of persecution. That's true of all sorts of obstacles that we go through, isn't it? And God allows us to go through things so we look back and say, wow, and we praise God and we have this unique experience to sing a new song to the Lord. And so it's an amazing thing when we think, when we think it through. Let's, uh, let's think it through. The, uh, let's look at verse 12 as well. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What is he saying? This, he says, you want to know what patience is? This is what it is. You look at what the 144,000 have gone through. This is it. Here is the patience of the saints. We can endure. We can. Why? Because we've had a glimpse of the end. We get a chance to see how it goes. We know how things look right now in the world. Boy, it would seem a lot easier to just to jump ship. Right? but we've seen the end. We know where it goes. This has been a difficulty for college ages. A lot of you're raised in church. You just kind of assume everything that you've heard is, is true until all of a sudden you start hearing some of the lies for the first time. And all of a sudden you say, well, man, it would be a lot easier. I could fit into this world a whole lot better if I just give up all this church stuff. We've got to show them a glimpse of the end. Say, man, boy, you've got to look at the end. You've got to see where this is going because the world is messed up. The world is messed up and the stuff they're going to teach you. But we can get there. Why? Because we understand that they have a chance at the gospel right now. We understand that the man-made empires, every single one of them is going to crumble. We understand the internal conditions of people who are persecutors of, of, of the truth. We understand that. So why on earth would we be jealous of them? We shouldn't. Why would we want to trade places with them? We shouldn't. So we, what do we do? We persevere. We endure. We're patient. This is the source of patience for the saints, for believers. The last verse in the, in the, this, for what we're going to deal with today, verse 13, says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Let me just stop there for a moment. Um, this didn't make it into one of the Beatitudes of Jesus necessarily. Like, blessed are, and you know, all those blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Um, you know, typically when you think of blessed, you don't say, blessed are the dead. Right? 
So this is, so you have to take a, a, a verse like this and, and do a little double take, like, wait, what? But it's true, and you think about it. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Is it really blessed to die? If they die in the Lord, blessed to die? Yes. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. When you think about that, for every person who's died in the Lord, every person who's died in Christ, death is a step up. Right? It's, and we celebrate it. We do mourn our loss, and that's why we have funerals, and we have, we, there's nothing wrong with mourning our loss, but when, we, when it's a believer, we don't really mourn their loss, right? In fact, I say that in almost every funeral that I, that I uh, officiate, I mention that this is their loss, not ours. I'm sorry, this is our loss, not theirs. <laughs> I probably say it wrong in every... I've probably been saying it wrong all these years, I don't know. But in reality, it's the, it's the truth that it is our loss, but it's not their loss. And there's comfort in that when they die in the Lord, because death is gain in the Lord. And he goes on, uh, I, think the, I think the way to word this, the fourth truth that, that encourages me is that we will be rewarded for our perseverance. There will be rewards for our perseverance. The way it's put in the, in the verse, it says that they may rest from their labors. Our persecution will come to an end. Their torment will not. That's enough of a difference for me to jump ship, get out of the world, and put, jump into the boat of Christianity with both feet. Right? You got to get off of the world, follow Christ, wherever it goes, whatever the consequences. Why? This is, this is why. We drink... We drink the diluted wrath of the beast, sure. But it sure beats drinking the undiluted wrath of God, without a doubt. It also says, and their works follow them. In other words, what you do on earth is going to actually follow you into heaven. That's a positive thing, isn't it? When you endure, when you, when you persevere, when you undergo persecution in the world... What are you doing? You're storing up rewards that you're going to receive in heaven. We talk about this since we're kids, but we forget it as adults sometimes. And we store up these things for heaven. Our works will follow us. And just as the earth dwellers will be punished in the afterlife for their actions on earth, so we too will be rewarded for our good works in eternity. So when we think of... of of the application. I think if I were to put the application into one, one sentence, I would say the application today is to resolve to endure persecution by, for following Christ, regardless of the consequences. Right. To resolve to, to do that. So what does that mean? That means not giving in to idolatry. By the way, idolatry shows up in a lot of different forms. Right? You don't have to worship a, a piece of plastic. Right? You know, it comes in all sorts of forms. It's when you put anything in the place of God. It means to follow Christ regardless of the consequences. It means not falling for the lies that the world, has, the world propagates. You know, the world has put out so many lies to try and steal glory from God. 
Why? Because Satan can't set up his kingdom until people don't give any glory to God that he deserves. Right? So there's so many lies out there. I believe that, that, that there's a lie of evolution intended to say, oh, God didn't create the world. It created itself. Doesn't make sense. And I love science. Don't get me wrong. It's not faith versus science. When you look at at, uh, at some of some of the other lies uh, that, that we find, it's to steal glory away from God. I think there's a lie about the value of life going on right now. We have to be very careful to follow what, what God says. And what do we, if we want to be like the 144,000, we need to be the kind that no deceit is found in our mouth. We don't propagate that kind of garbage that the world sends to us. We speak the truth. And you know what? If you do, you'll be persecuted. But know this. It's worth it. It's worth it. How do we can know it's worth it? Because we've just seen a glimpse of the end. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for, for your word. I thank you, Lord, that we have an encouragement to do what is right, to stand up for what is right. And Lord, it's, it's difficult, I know. It can be very difficult for, for us when, when it seems like everyone at work or everyone in our schools or everyone in our neighborhoods, sometimes even everyone in our family may be at a point where they're, they're making fun of us for our belief and our faith in you. But Lord, we commit. We resolve that we'll follow you and we'll follow your son wherever he may go. And even if it leads to our death, we know that our punishment, our persecution from the world will end. And theirs will not. We thank you for this glimpse of eternity, Lord. And I pray that it would drive us forward. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.